So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and life and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Good to have everybody out today, especially visitors. Got several uh, folks from the Healing Transitions that talked to a little bit in the back, and good to have you here as always, and, and visitors from family and folks from the community. Um, we really appreciate that. Today's lesson comes from a prayer, actually, um, or uh, a, Paul's record of the prayer. He's relaying to the Ephesian readers, this letter to the Ephesian Christians, a prayer that he's been praying on their behalf. Um, and uh, he tells us, or tells them, and by virtue of them, us, and all readers, that he's been suffering some things. In verse 13 here, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. He's been suffering, namely, for teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ. Indeed, uh, earlier in this very chapter, we uh, learned that he is imprisoned. He's been put in prison. Uh, calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus in Ephesians 3.1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And so he's concerned, apparently, that the Ephesian church, which Paul had played a, a crucial role in founding way back in the book of Acts, tells us about this, that they would lose heart, as verse 13 says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. He's enduring some things, and they're going to hear about it, and it's going to cause perhaps anxiety on their part, maybe shake them to their core, because here is the, the chief proponent of the expansion of the gospel of Jesus, especially in this part of the Mediterranean uh, basin, and, and he's now in jail. And so Paul's concerned that his suffering will issue in their discouragement. Perhaps you can relate to that. You ever face sufferings that are so weighty that you just really don't know uh, what to do? You don't know where to turn. You feel like you've met your match. You're all out of answers. You feel so devoid of, of the strength necessary to face the challenge before you that you don't really have anything but questions and anxieties. And Paul tells the Ephesus church that they should not lose heart. And that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Do not lose heart. Here's a prayer from the Apostle Paul for strength when Christians are weak. So that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes this morning. What he's saying is you're not alone when you go through that. He may be in prison somewhere else in the world, but he's reminding them that neither he nor they are alone. There is this reservoir of hope and courage that are there at the ready. And today we want to see how we can take encouragement from this prayer. And I want to suggest a, a handful of things that I've noticed from this text this week about not losing heart. Not losing heart in our weakness, amidst our questions, is a matter of, first of all, being filled up with God. Being filled up 
with God. You and I, picture yourself as a vessel. And it's, you know, it, 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 what's it going to be filled with? It's filled with any number of things. The stuff we watch on the news, uh, the, the stuff that comes in the mailbox that might be disturbing, you know, a, a bill you weren't expecting, something that happens at work, a notice on your desk, uh, a health scare, some sin that just is slowly eating you away because it's the same old temptation and it's so tenacious and you don't know what to do about it. Maybe it's struggles in your marriage or in your family or you're, you're dealing with addiction or, or uh, you know, depression or any number of things. What do we do when we're at our wits end? When we're all out of answers? When we don't have the strength to face what's before us? And I think everybody gets to that point at some point in their life, right? You may not have been there yet, um, especially you, the younger ones in this section. Um, but some of you have. Uh, you know, it just, it's, this is a matter of, of time and chance and God's providence. It's not something we're controlling. But we're going to all get there if we haven't already. Your strength tank, you know, the gauge on your strength tank is close to E. Whether we're talking physical strength or mental strength or spiritual strength or emotional strength, it's not even close to full and you know it. Then what do you do? I mean, I'm thinking here of, of Job, the way the book of Job begins. And here's Job, you know, everything is going well. He's the wealthiest man in one of the four uh, directions of the compass. That's pretty wealthy, right? The wealthiest man in the east, right? And he's got this wonderful family. He functions in like a priestly function. Well, he's that close to God that he's offering sacrifices for other people. I mean, this is a, a really uh, a, a man on, on the top of his game that God has blessed. And then he begins to get bad news, right? And he gets bad news, the worst kind of bad news, and it comes upon him in waves, wave after wave. One messenger comes and says, these Sabaean raiders have struck down your servants while they were doing their job out in the fields. They're dead. And it says, while he was yet speaking, remember that phrase over and over and over in that chapter, while he was yet speaking, the, a fire from heaven fell. I don't know if this is lightning or what it is, but it burned up a lot of Job's sheep and more of his servants are killed. And while that news was coming in, while he was yet speaking, another messenger comes and says, these Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and they've killed more of your servants. And while he was yet speaking, Another comes in and says, while your sons and daughters were all eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, you know, they're just having this feast, they're enjoying themselves and their relationship, no doubt. A great wind comes up, knocks the house down, and kills all of your children inside. And this is all before Job loses his own health. So it's wave after wave after wave, just blunt force trauma, you know. Physically, psychologically, even spiritually sometimes. And here's Paul's solution. Be filled with all the fullness of God. Be filled up on God. Fill your tank with God. I want you to imagine yourself being filled all the way to the brim of your being with God himself. Think about that. You've got every bit of God, the creator, that power, that, that is available to you, 100% filling you up. 
I don't know what you picture when you picture that. I kind of picture this you know, test tube with markers or a beaker, and it's being filled. And now there's nowhere, you can't pour any more in. And that's God, in, in, but that's you, right? Your vessel is filled all the way to the, to the, 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 the top with God. If that were the case, I mean, what couldn't we face? If we, if, we, if we could really know that, if we could really feel that, like it was as real and palpable as this table is right here. Yeah, God's inside me all the way up. There is not a thing in the world, I guarantee you, that we, we couldn't face with confidence because I, it's the, the power of creation is right here in me, right? Bring it. I'll blow it away. I'll, I'll, I'll neutralize it. I'll vaporize it. I'll, whatever. God's in here. You worried about something going on in your life? Well, all of your life occurs within creation, right? Within this realm that we live in. Colossians 1.17 says that, in, that Christ is the one who existed before creation and who presently, present tense, holds together everything in heaven and on earth. Everything from the farthest star to the most microscopic DNA in your body. Wherever the problem is happening, it's happening in the creation. And guess what? Our God is holding the creation together. Don't you think He's in your DNA? He's in that little strange part of your body that nobody knew about before 50 years ago. He's always known about it because He made it. Are you worried about the future? A lot of things on the horizon that we don't understand, that we're scared of, that cause us anxiety. We try to not think about them. Psalm 31, David says that Yahweh is the one who began time. And because of that, he holds our times in his hand. Your future's in God's hand. All time is in his hand. And so Paul is saying, that's who we, we, we can be filled with that God. We can face any challenge, we can walk through any danger if we truly believe that God is right there with us. He is there, whether we know it or not. But Paul is inviting the Ephesians, who know that this, as far as they're concerned, you know, exponent of the gospel, founder almost of the gospel in their part of the world. He didn't start it, but he's the one who brought it there. He's in jail. That's pretty disconcerting. But he says, the God who made the world and who runs the world, is available for you. Fill up on Him. Do you really believe that His, his, his uh, presence can be with us in that, in that way? The very next verse, Paul says, is, 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 in this context, is connected to this uh, in encouraging ways as well. Now to Him, this is Ephesians 3.20, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we even ask or think, so whatever you, imagine what you would ask or think that you need God to do. He can do more than that. He can do abundantly more than that. He can do far more abundantly than whatever you can ask. That is the most redundant thing I think I've ever read. It's like five redundancies. You don't think he's trying to say, look, I'm not kidding. <laughs> not playing around here. He's up to the, to the challenge. He's up to the task. All right, so filling up with God. Problem is, believing God is powerful isn't the only thing we need to be strengthened in the face of our suffering or in the face of our weakness. Because God's ability to help us is one thing. God's desire to help us is another thing. In other words, God's ability to, uh, alone isn't, doesn't necessarily imply that he, he wants to help us. He might be able, 
a lot of powerful people in the world who don't, who don't desire to help us. They don't know us. They don't care about us. But here's the good news. This almighty being does want to help us. He not only has the capability, he's got the desire. And the reason the Bible gives over and over and over again is that he loves us. And I think that's why not losing heart, do not lose heart, Paul says, is also a matter of acknowledging the significance of love. And this really connects with our theme for the year. And aspects of this, we're going to make themes for the subsequent years. Um, one of those we're already working on and we'll be uh, talking about soon as a church because we're approaching the new year. But we love because he first loved us. That, 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 that statement is such a pithy, uh, you know, all-encompassing statement. It really captures almost every aspect of the Bible. And, and, and the cool thing about it is it begins where the Bible begins, with God. Because God first. God is the origin and the point of it all. But God doesn't just sit there selfishly and enjoy how great he is. He creates. He makes otherness. And he brings other creatures to him and invites them to be like him and do as he does and take on his traits and attributes. And, and those are love. And so love, it's no, you know, uh, shouldn't be any uh, great revelation right now, is the centerpiece of everything. In Christianity and in uh, the, the biblical story. And so we've got to acknowledge the significance of love. We've got to acknowledge the centrality of love. I want you to notice here in verse 19 of our text how that knowing the love of Christ is the very thing that fills us with the fullness of God. So we, we want to be filled with God like we talked about in the first point. But look what he says in verse 19. Paul's praying that the Ephesians might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's interesting, too, because he's praying that they can know something that is unknowable. Right? He just says it surpasses knowledge. Okay, that means it's incomprehensible. But guess what? I want you to comprehend the incomprehensible. What? That's what Jesus does. He makes his incomprehensible, unattainable, immutable, uh, not immutable, inscrutable is what I mean to say, presence of God and reality of God, the love of God, he brings it near, bring, makes it real. He makes the love that surpasses knowledge knowable in Christ. And when we know this love, look what it says happens. We are filled with the fullness of God. So you can't have the fullness of God in you. You will not be filled with God if you don't comprehend love. That's what he, he links the two here, right? Basically, I'm making a statement of grammar. Just honoring the actual language. There's no interpretation here. Knowing the love of Christ surpasses knowledge is what fills you with the fullness of God. And so that says basically that love is the heart of it all. And I wonder if we believe that. Some of us may not even know that yet. It's a matter of data. And, and if you're interested in this, and this is sort of, sort of new to you, and you're just curious about this whole Christianity thing, this whole Bible thing, we love to sit down and nerd it up with you. We do. There's a lot of people here. You're not going to have, it's not going to be hard to find people to sit down and talk about that. So, um, and, and, you know, learn together more of God's Word. So hit us up. And, and I would like to do that. Anybody here would. But if you know that intellectually and, and, and you have trouble letting that percolate down to your, to your gut, the place that, you know, creates our responses to things and our priorities and our passions and our behavior, honestly. Head knowledge doesn't get you very far. Get you to about Tuesday after you hear a sermon. We need the kind that takes you beyond that. And that's when your actual passions change, your core, your heart changes. That's what we're talking about. And I wonder if you think that love is the central key 
to having God inside you, to having God in your life, to being filled up with God, to having a relationship with God. Let me ask you this question, a little thought experiment. If you had to reduce it down to a single thing, what is the most fundamental key to having the presence of God with you? What is the single thing, if you had to, I'm not saying you have to, because biblically there's several things, but if, I, if we did a thought experiment and you had to reduce it down to the, the single most elemental thing that is the key to having God's presence with you, what would it be? Would it be, you know, somebody might say, well, it's adhering to his moral and, and, and ethical teachings perfectly because God's holy and uh, he can't have sin in his presence. And there's so many Bible verses on obedience. And so it's following the rule of God. It's obedience. It's, it's bringing to God, a, a, you know, a record of obedience instead of just ignoring him, doing what you want. So it's, 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 it's following his teachings, the moral ones, the ethical ones, behavioral ones. Somebody else might say, well, it's keeping all the, the biblical acts of corporate worship to a T. You can't just ignore those. It's these rights that he gave us. He didn't have to, and he did. So you know, we, we, we should listen to that. What we do in this assembly should look like what they did in the first century assembly. My question is, is are those kinds of things the bottom line ingredients? If you had to boil it down, are those the bottom line ingredients? The thing underneath all the things. The thing that pervades everything else for ensuring that God is with us. Now, to be sure, the things I just mentioned are very important. I mean, God gives us His precepts and His practices. He gives us examples in the New Testament of a church under you know, apostolic oversight, uh, Holy Spirit guidance, it's doing these things. Those are not optional. He, he, he gave them to us for a reason. But let me suggest to you that there are some very large problems, and I would think fatal problems, with making those things the bottom line criteria for gaining God's approval, for gaining God's acceptance. One reason is very simple. The Bible itself. You're interested in following what the Bible says? Obedience and holiness and all that? Great. The Bible itself says ad infinitum, like over and over and over and over, that you will not succeed at that. So now what? <laughs> and if you deny that, you're, if you're not going to take that, you're, you're not following the Bible. So that dies with your first point. You see what I'm saying? That's self-defeating. One of them, it would be this one. David is hiding, in a, King David is hiding. He's on the run as he often was, especially early on, right? He's running from his enemies. He's literally hiding in a cave. Can you imagine that? There's somebody, there are people who have a target on his back, and he's crying out for God's mercy. Look what he says here in Psalm 143, verse 2. He begs God, enter not into judgment with me, your servant, for no one living, no one living is righteous before you. David says, I've given up this idea that I can merit, that I can bring to you this perfect record of performance and have a relationship based on that. There is not a soul alive when compared to your holiness that can, that can have that conversation, right? That won't work. And in fact, that's, it's not what our text says. The text we're reading doesn't say that. That's not the thing it identifies as the bottom line ingredient in being filled up with God, having God in you. It says instead that the path to having God fill us full of Himself is something else. It is comprehending God's love for us in Christ. That's what it says. Comprehending, understanding 
God's love for us in Christ. Look at it here. This is Ephesians 3, our text for this morning, verses 18 and 19. He prays that the Ephesian church, and by extension, all of us who are readers and believers in Scripture, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you, that, why all that? So that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. God is there at the ready to fill you up. How, how does that happen? What's the mechanism? What's the conduit that gets God into us? Sorry about that. Um, it is comprehending the full dimensions of God's love. Look at the language here. He says, I just want you to know from, you know, this way, all, all the way down that way, all the way this way, and all the way this way. The breadth, the length, and then from height to depth. The, just, I want you to really, really get it. If you could know how much God loves you in Christ, then you're going to be filled with the fullness of God. And that's your bottom line. That, that's what eventuates in transformation and obedience and holiness. Don't start there. Start at the start. You really won't be transformed all the way without that. You can talk about it. You can make comments in church and all that, and I can preach sermons about it. But the transformative thing is the love of Christ. That's what gets God in me. And that's what empowers us to face the darkness and its many manifestations all around us in this broken world. Okay, um, commenting on the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the author I quoted last week, one of the two authors I quoted last week, a guy named Wayne Jacobson, notes that our, he, so he's talking about the father figure in the parable of the prodigal son, and he notes that the heavenly father, like the story's father, doesn't need our service. You think God needs our service? You think when we take communion, that's for God? Maybe in a sense, because he loves us and he wants to have fellowship with us. But do you think God is up there? If God needs the stuff we bring, the little money we put in a minute ago or whatever, then how powerful is he? How is he omniscient and omnipotent and all those omnis if he, he's actually waiting on, hey, give me something because I'm going to run out. and need it. And that's what he's talking about here when he says God, it's, it, our service, our sacrifice is not ultimately what God's interested in. Not ultimately. He wants those things, but that's not ultimately what he wants. And I'll pick up the quote here. God is not interested in your service or sacrifice. He only wants you to know how much you are loved, hoping that you will choose to love him in return. Understand that, and everything else about your life will fall into place. Miss that, and nothing else will make any difference. So now he turns to this, the story, the parable of the prodigal son. The younger, that is the prodigal son who runs off and you know, wastes his father's living. The younger son represents those who run from God by indulging in their own selfish pursuits. The older son, one who stays home, represents those who work hard to impress God with their commitment. Fearful of the consequences of disappointing God, they slave away for, for him but they never come to the depth of relationship of the relationship that God wants with them. They're doing the deeds, they're obedient, but they don't have a relationship. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were like that. 
as are many people today who are caught up in a host of religious activities, but miss out on what it really means to live in the Father's love. In the long run, it doesn't matter whether rebellion or religion keeps you from a vibrant relationship with the Father. Listen to that. In the long run, it doesn't matter whether it's rebellion, younger son, or religion, dutiful older son who represents the Pharisees in the story. Whichever one of those keeps you from a relationship with the Father, you still don't have a relationship. The result is still the same. He is cheated out. God is cheated out of the relationship He wants with you, and you never come to know how He feels about you. Everything about your life hinges on the answer to one simple question when you boil it down, and that's this. Do you know how loved you really are? Do you know how loved you really are? So we're stressing the importance of God's love, acknowledging the center, that it's at the centerpiece of everything. But there's something else we need to talk about for a minute or two. Because it's one thing to, uh, to stress the importance of God's love, the significance of God lo- God's love. It's another thing altogether to know how personally to grasp that love, to trust in it. I mean, I might believe, yet need God to, quote, help my unbelief when it comes to His love for me. I believe, help my unbelief. We may know we need to comprehend God's love. We may want to comprehend God's love. But how do we go about grasping God's love? That's going to be our, our last point here. How do we go about grasping God's love? Well, it's truly comforting to open up the pages of Scripture and read over and over again that the God that we serve isn't some aloof distant, unapproachable, vengeful God. You know, he could have been. God could be all-powerful, almighty, and all those things, and just completely aloof, like, yeah, I'm really powerful. Don't mess with me, and I'm not really interested in you. I created you. That's kind of the deist God, you know. Started the clock going, yeah. But he's not. not. Not if the Bible means anything. The true God is the God who came near to us. He initiated. He traveled to be with us in Jesus Christ. And He did this by His own choice. Remember the words to Joseph prior to the birth of Jesus? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the whole story. He does come near. He does want a relationship, and he goes to great lengths to bring that about. And there are a few things mentioned in our text uh, today, and I want to close by observing this handful of things, things which God offers to us in order to help us grasp that love. He doesn't just leave us here and go, you need to get it. If you don't get it, you you won't have it. I won't fill you up. Well, that's true, but he also offers ways for us to grasp his love. And let me suggest some of these right from the text. First thing he offers us, he offers us his ear. Prayer. God listens when we cry out. There's a reason why the number one most common psalm in the book of Psalms are lament psalms. Even when we don't understand things and are saying, God, what's going on? When we're complaining, when we're anxious, and we just take that to God, that's something. You're not taking it to somebody else. Number one, most common psalm is a lament psalm. And they're not always resolved at the end. 
Sometimes they are, I praise you. Sometimes they just end that way. You ever felt like that? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. The lion's share of the book of Job is that. And Job too is that way. God's secure enough to allow us to do that. Are you secure enough to allow your children to do that? Probably. Well, God, the, the ultimate father is too. And, and, but he is with us. That's part of being with us. Um, so he listens to us. He hears our prayers. After all, this whole text we're reading from today is Paul relaying a prayer. We're studying a prayer right now, or at least the report of a prayer. Look what he says here. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God offers us his ear. We bow our knees to pray to the Father, and when we do, he hears us. And look at who it is we're addressing. He is the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth in His name. And there's a little play on words here. The word Father in verse 14 is the Greek word patria, uh, patera, sorry, patera. And then the second word uh, from every family, you can't see this in English in, as much, that's the word, I, I don't remember the exact forms, patera, I think, I've got it written down, but I'm losing my place in my notes. At any rate, they, they sound almost exactly the same. And you could, you could come close to translating family, every family in heaven on earth, as every fatherly line. So he's basically saying all the fathers out there in the world, the heads of tribes, the heads of families that we all know have power, guess who the father of all those fatherhoods is? God. And there's something else. Notice it says in verse 15, not only from every family on earth, but from every family in heaven and on earth. What's that about? Maybe it's just a hyperbolic way of saying everybody everywhere who's a human, God's the father of all of them. A lot of commentators think this is actually though a reference to something else that Ephesians talks about four or five times in a really small letter. All of these principalities and powers, these rulers in heavenly places that Paul talks about that are sort of rebelling and taking the world in different directions than God intended for it to, he created them too. He's over them too. So all the fatherhoods, the powers, the authorities, the family heads, in all of the cosmos, God's the source of and authority over every one of them. That's who we're praying to. And then secondly, being a father shows affection, relationship. He could have just been called, before, I bow my knees before the king or the general or something like that, the dictator, the monarch. No, it's the father. So power and intimacy, right? Capability and desire to lovingly hear us. So we need to pray. We need to pray, God, help me to grasp your love more. You know, I need to pray for David. I need to pray for Paul. They need to pray for me. We need to help each other grasp the love of God. We need to pray for our young teenagers and say, help that young woman and that young man to not need to be defined by something else, to get their identity from the love of God, right? You don't need to go into this crazy stuff over here. We see each other going the wrong way. That's why we're called to admonish each other gently. We're more than that. God made us for more than that. Be defined by his love. And, and we pray that way because he's listening. The second thing he offers us in addition to his ear is his word. After all, the present discussion here, Ephesians 3, 13 through 19, is what gives us access to our topic today. We're having this discussion right now together. We're having this study of a portion of the Bible. This is from Ephesians, which is a document 
one of 66 in the Scriptures. So Paul isn't saying, hey, study the Scriptures, but what he's saying is Scripture. It's made canonical so that we can all study this and learn from it. And there's a larger point there. The Bible is, is just replete. It's full of these affirmations of God's amazing love for His children. Think about them. The stories it gives us over and over, like the parable of the prodigal son, a father who lets his son go do these things, lets him go make his mess. And that's got to be heartbreaking, but he knows that that's how he's going to finally exhaust himself on these false passions and finally come back, and there he is, eyes peeled on the horizon, ready to welcome him with open arms. That is the most encouraging story. I think I would be a believer if that was the Bible was one page and it was that parable. I really do. It's too beautiful. It resonates with too, mar too many parts of my being. You feel me on that? That's a, it's a beautiful story. And there's so many more that illustrate God's amazing love. All the promises, the, the prayers, the, the soul-stirring images of God. He's a father, or he's like a mother nursing her, her baby in, in, at his breast. He's like a mother hen gathering her chicks. He's like a father who goes to war on behalf of his you know, uh, the, the children who are treated unjustly. Or one of my favorites, Zephaniah 3.17, where we read, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is near. He's not some distant place. He's right here. And guess what? He's a mighty one who will save. And he's going to rejoice, some versions say, delight over you with gladness. God is sitting there looking down on you and me, delighting. The way you look at, you know, uh, the, the way I'm delighting with Canaan's lumberjack look today. I mean, it's just, it, I just, it just warms my heart when I see my grandchildren or your grandchildren. They're, they say silly things, and it's, just, it's a great joy. Think of God looking down on you doing that. He, he rejoices up with you and glad. He quiets you by His love. What, what an intimate, nurturing picture that is. He's quieting you with His love. He's taking you in, putting His arms around you, putting a blanket over your shoulders. Right? And He's, gonna, he's exulting over you with singing. God is singing loudly while thinking about you and me. The Bible is full of that. One end to the other. God loves us. So we need to regularly saturate ourselves with His Word. Some story is going to be defining your, your you know, kind of giving you your little narrative day by day. And going to church once or twice a week can't undercut and overturn all these other false narratives that are out there trying to define you and give you your identity. We've got to get it from God's story. And that's why the Word is essential. And thirdly, not only does He give us His ear and His Word, He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His very Spirit. Look at Ephesians 3 again, verse 16 and 17. Paul prays that according to the riches of God's glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Part of Him, I wouldn't say part really, I mean, that's the whole problem of trying to understand three in one, but God, the Godness, the Godhood is offered to you in the form of His Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in the hearts, in your hearts through faith, and you can be rooted and grounded in love. So I need to be rooted and grounded in love. How do I get that? I understand it, I agree, it's an, intellectually I, I affirm the need, the centrality of love, how do I get it? How do I grasp it? How do I comprehend it? He says, I'm going to give you my spirit so that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith and you'll be rooted and grounded in love. You, get, you, you grasp the love to the extent that 
you're, you're, you're in touch with the Spirit. The Spirit is, is giving you this in some mysterious way that's not really identified here. But He's doing something to effect this, our being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, right? That's what the text says. God's Spirit's inside me, empowering me to perceive Christ's presence there in my heart, and He's ever rooting me and grounding me in His love. You know, I think when I read rooting and grounding, I think of when you, it's spring and everybody gets a fever to run out to a nursery or Home Depot or somewhere and get all these plants and start doing yard work, at least I do. Goes carries me through about, I don't know, July 4th and I'm done, ready for fall. But anyway... Um, I have fever. I just want to be in dirt. I, 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 I want to go back to the dirt from which I came. Not in the full sense yet, but, you know, um, I, I love it. And, you know, you learn early on, if, you're, if you've ever done any gardening, that you've got to really, you know, pack the soil around the roots of whatever plant you're putting in there. And you can overdo that, but it, you can certainly underdo it. And you, it looks like dirt's all around it, but you've got air pockets in there, and three or four days later, a week or two later, the thing's flopping over, and you don't know why. It has insufficient contact with its nutrients, with soil. It's got to be rooted. It's got to be grounded. Here is the Holy Spirit packing that dirt, that nutritious dirt, the love of Christ around your soul, around your life, day by day by day by day. But here's the catch. He will not do that against your will. You've got to let Him. We can grieve the Spirit, Scriptures say elsewhere. God didn't make robots. He wants to love us, and love involves, by definition, two independent volitional creatures. That's why it's so beautiful, potentially. It's also why it's so tragic when it doesn't work, when one party or the other chooses selfishness. So we open ourselves up to the Spirit, and the Spirit is continually grounding and rooting us in the love of Christ, which is the very thing that fills us with God and makes us impervious to the sufferings of this world. Romans 8 is another place that says something very similar. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're His children if we're led by His Spirit. He says, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, anxiety, like Paul's worried about the Ephesians happening. That's not what you got when you became a Christian. No, you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This term of <clears throat> incredible intimacy. Fatherly love, tenderness, affection. And guess what that spirit inside us is doing? Look at verse 16. The spirit himself is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, that's what we doubt. Remember what Satan said to Jesus in the in the temptations in the wilderness? If you're the Son of God. That's where it always starts, isn't it? He's going to make hypothetical something the Bible makes definite. And when it gets hypothetical, we're moving down that path toward anxiety and weakness and our, arm, our armor is disintegrating. It's not hypothetical. The Spirit of God Himself is inside you, telling you, testifying to you, witnessing to you continually that you are His child. And so we've got to listen, if I might put it this way, to the voice of God's Spirit, not to the voice of adversary. I'm not saying you're going to hear an audible voice. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. I've never heard that. I've known some Christians who, say, who I believe are really, really credible who've said, you know, I never thought about it. I heard something one time when I was going through this. There's some people here who've told me things like that, and I have trouble just going, nah. I want to hear something like that. 
I, I, that's not going to be Bible. This, this isn't the authority of the scriptures. Whatever, though. It doesn't matter how. It doesn't tell us how. Does that matter, really? The question is, you're being inundated with quote-unquote voices all the time, telling you you're not good. You sinned again. You haven't beat this. You're on your 14th try. There's so much injustice. There's no hope. Is God real? Maybe He's powerful, but does He care about you and me? Those are the voices of the adversary. And we've got to get those out and listen to the voice of the Spirit of God. Because in many ways, folks, it is a dark world that we live in. It's made dark by injustice and oppression and exploitation, selfishness. It's made dark by my sin, by your struggles with the same old temptation and your failures and my failures. We see it in the darkness of our relationships that are suboptimal. They're, they're kind of broken. We see it in the darkness of sin and sickness and death. But God is saying there is light on the horizon. The sun is coming up and is already dawned with the resurrection of Jesus. I want to close with a U2 quote. I know, weird. This is from that album that came out that nobody wanted. You know, that got on their iPhone. I wanted it. I was like one last person. Nobody under 50 wanted it. They're like, who's this band? Why are they on my iPhone? Um, the rest of us were like, sweet. Uh, it's called A Song for Someone. Joseph is not here today. Joseph Hodge loves this song as well. Here's the refrain. If there is a light you can't always see, and there is a world that we can't always be, if there is a dark now, we shouldn't doubt. And there is a light. Don't let it go out. Amen? Amen? Thanks a lot, folks, for your attention today. We're going to sing Give Me Thy Heart. If we can help you in any way, let us know by coming to one of these chairs in the inner circle as together we all stand and sing.